here with John Edwards, the founder of Pew Ministries. Um, we just recorded a Life on the Rock episode with you, and um, we heard about you through your podcast, Just a Guy in the Pew uh, podcast, and really enjoyed that and wanted to have you on to hear more. Um, let's start with the story. It's sure. such a great story. <laughs> sure. What happened to you? <laughs> well, you know, I, I was a pretty normal kid growing up. You know, grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, born and raised Baptist and was Baptist 18 years of my life. Uh, you know, played sports, did all the regular stuff everybody did. Um, but I just, I didn't have a lot of friends at school. Uh, I went to an Episcopal school, it was Baptist, and now I'm Catholic, so I've kind of made the rounds. But um, I just had my friends at church. And from, I mean, there's pictures you can see at my parents' house of me with the same kids when we were four and the same kids when we were 18. And so I had this community there, and then Memphis is sort of this melting pot of, SEC schools, you know, people's parents went to Auburn or Alabama or Mississippi State or so a lot of the kids in that group wanted to follow in their parents' footsteps. So at 18, they were, you know, they were gone. They were out of there. Mm. And I was never a guy that knew what I wanted to do. I was never like, I want to be a CPA or a doctor or a lawyer. I didn't know. So I just said I'll enroll at the University of Memphis and, and, uh, and see if I can figure out what I want to do while I'm at college. I was very lonely, you know, I was working uh, at an auto parts place. I had been so 16, continuing doing that, going to school, making good grades. But every day I would go to campus and I'd see thousands of people and like I would have no one to talk to. You know, I mean, I'd see pretty girls and I'd try to talk to them and they wouldn't talk to me. And, right. and then one day I saw a guy walk in a room and uh, wearing a, uh, in one of the classrooms wearing a fraternity shirt. And all these girls were talking to him. And I thought, well, maybe I ought to get one of those shirts. Mm -hmm. So uh, I knew a guy in a fraternity. I called him. They were fixing a rush for the fall, I think it was. And so I went and I made it in. And that was the last day I went to church for 10 years of my life. Yeah. Um, and your upbringing was a devout Baptist. Your parents took the faith seriously? Yes, yes. Yeah. They dropped us off and for Sunday school every mm -hmm. week and then came back and went to church with us. Mm -hmm. um, my parents were a little older than, than most of the people that were in their Sunday school, so they didn't go to that per se because they felt weird because of the yeah. age difference. But, um, but yeah, they were always, my grandparents were, you know, don't work on Sundays. You can't even cut the grass. You can't, you know, they were very religious in that way. And you took it serious in high I school. Yeah. I did. You know, I, I grew up going to mission trips and vacation Bible schools where, a lot of times at school, I get made fun of a lot when I yeah. was young because we'd come back from the weekend and people would say, "Well, well, I went skateboarding or I did this or I went to a concert," and they'd say, "What do you do? What'd you do?" Mm -hmm. And I'd say, "I went to a special friends camp and I helped you know kids with special needs yeah. have a camp that weekend." And I get made fun of, you know, right. and right. things like that. So that's why I always kind of ran to church and had that group that was supportive. And when I got into college, I didn't have that, and I started looking for that in the in the wrong places and. You know, I give talks to high school kids and kids are getting ready to go to college a lot. And, and what I tell them is, you know, they're excited to leave their parents. They're excited to be able to do what they want to do on their terms. But I tell them freedom's a good thing if you know who you are. Right. If you don't, then you start looking for other people to tell you who you are. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did. So I started seeing people smoking pot. And I go, well, you know, those guys like those guys if they smoke pot. So I'll smoke pot. And, you know, they like these guys that get real drunk. So I'll get real drunk. And. Next thing you know, it just led me through all of these things. And I did a bunch of drugs and wound up doing cocaine. And that was something that followed me uh, through college and yeah. 17 years yeah. of my life. Yeah, wow. So what happened then? You you had a you know, you know had a good part-time job and yeah. were successful with that. And sure. you got married young and... Yep, yep. So we, 
You know, I, in college, I was very lonely. I mean, we kind of pulled away from the fraternity, and it was just a couple of us doing mm-hmm. the drugs all the time. And everything I said I wasn't going to do started breaking and falling, right? I'll never buy it. I'll never have the guy's number. I'll never yeah, handle myself. Yeah. Well, th- those all felt like dominoes. I wasn't seeing any girls in my life because I was basically working and then doing drugs at night. Mm-hmm. And all this time, I started working my way up in this company. You know, I never yeah. did anything while I was on the job. I would go to work, do the work, and then I would, you know, live hard at night. Yeah. And so I was very lonely, very isolated. And one night I, I walked in this bar with my little sister. She had come in town and we were meeting some friends of mine that she liked. And mm-hmm. um, everybody left early that night. But this girl walked in from college that I'd known from years before. And she sent a friend over and didn't recognize me. I'd gained some weight and, yeah. you know, grew a beard or something. But we go sit down and, and we started talking and, Next thing you know, I realize she likes me, and, and we go out the next night, and we get married a year later. Mm. Uh, this whole time, I was thinking, man, this is this is what I need in my life. Like I've been waiting for something that will make me stop doing this, yeah. and I'm going to get married now. Now I got to get serious. I'm not a kid anymore. It's time to grow up. Well, it didn't work. I immediately, you know, it's after our marriage and honeymoon and all that, I started doing the drugs again. Yeah. And she didn't know I hid it from her. You know, I never did enough to show that I was messed up or something around her. So. Yeah. Um, we start talking about having kids and, uh, next thing you know, Jacob comes along my now 11 year old. And I, th- I remember thinking, this is it. Like, I'm going to stop while we're trying to conceive. I don't want anything to happen to him mm-hmm. health wise. And, and I've always wanted to be a dad and I've always wanted a little boy and I'm going to get one first and, you know, and, and this is it. I'll stop. Well, it didn't happen. Yeah. Next thing you know, Angel says we're pregnant with twins. Yeah. And, uh, and I just, I, I said, this is it, right? You're gonna have three kids. Yeah. Yeah. Stop! Didn't yeah. happen. So that's, I kept that's doing amazing. That. You could yeah. keep it hidden from her. You know, I would think she would pick up something. Or you know, she was busy doing what I should have been doing, <laughs> raising kids, and right. she yeah. worked full times and all of yeah. that. So she, you know, she knew something was up, but she didn't know what. Yeah. And then my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and mm-hmm. she had that about five years uh, before my son was born, and then she died about a year after my son was born. And when that happened. I basically just told God, I hate you. You mm-hmm. know, I said, why do, at that point, I had really looked at my life and how much I lied and just how much of a selfish person I was and how I talked to my wife and, you know, our money was my money, that kind of yeah. stuff. And I just remember when I, that was the only doctor's appointment I ever went to with my mother was when she found out that she had, she was going to die. Yeah. And yeah. I went back to their house with them and they were going to go down to their farm in Mississippi from there just to process it all. And, when they pulled out of the driveway, I remember kicking this concrete porch of theirs, which wasn't very smart, but I remember kicking it very hard and just looking up and saying, like, I hate you, God. Like, yeah. why, do, why does a good, upstanding, God-fearing, kind woman like that have to die and a scumbag like me gets mm-hmm. to live? Yeah. And so I told him, I said, I'll never worship you again. Hmm. And that's where problems really started with my wife and I. As I would go to church you know, with her, so I wouldn't get yelled at, you know, right, I wouldn't right. have to listen to her, yeah. you know, griping at me. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of times I didn't go because I was too hungover. Yeah. But when that happened, it was just like, I'm not going. Yeah. And so that hurt her, you know, she was, the kids were always asking, why do we have to go if dad doesn't go? And I didn't care, you know, I just, yeah. I just was mad at God. And um, all this happens. And next thing you know, I have a couple of nights where I'm up doing the drugs like I was every night. And I go back to go to bed. I developed a pornography problem. Was dealing with all that too. But I go back to bed and I and I, I fell asleep pretty quickly, which didn't happen. I was usually you know 
pretty high on cocaine, so it's hard to go to sleep. But I woke up one night and it was like being thrown out of the bed and it felt like my heart was going to explode out of my chest. Mm. And, uh, and I literally fell out of the bed and remember looking back up to me, and Angela didn't wake up. Yeah. I crawled into our bathroom and pulled myself up on the commode and sat there just going, this is it. Like, this is what you see on TV and in movies. When yeah. you mess with something too long, I'm going to die. Yeah. And I thought I should, I should t- yell for Angela to call an ambulance. But I didn't. I said, I'd rather die right here on this floor and not have to deal with losing everything in my life. Yeah. It's just how selfish I was. Right. So I wound up putting a towel in my face and slowing my breathing and, and, and it stopped. You know, everything stopped and I crawled back into bed and said, I, I won't do it again. Well, next day I was back buying more and the same thing happened the next night. Up out mm-hmm. of bed, on the commode again, stopping my breathing. And this time I said, I don't know how many strikes I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. And God, I, don't, I still don't love you, don't like you, don't want anything to do with you. But I know I need to change my life. And there's this men's conference coming up. My father-in-law has been trying to get me to go to. And I can at least go to confession. I'd only been one time during RCIA in the 10 years I've been Catholic. Right. And I thought, I'm just going to go there and I don't know what else to do. See if I can find some semblance of the man I used to be. And I went and I found this. Um, this the talks were fine or whatever. But I went to, I, I told to uh, confession. Of course, there was 30 some crying and all that. And he just said, like, I know him, do you I want know absolution? Because last thing I, I said was, I want to stop and I don't want to get in trouble. I finally yeah. found and he sort of lost it. He was like, what do you mean you don't want to get in trouble? You've been talking about how selfish you are. It's not up to you how God you know stops you from doing this. Yeah, yeah. You either want forgiveness or you don't. You need to take that seriously. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, man, he's kind of like, I thought it was going to be nicer than this. <laughs> you know, and Jesus is supposed to be nice, right? And, and so I just said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I just, I want absolution. I want forgiveness. And uh-huh. and he gave me, you know, he forgave my, my sins, gave me absolution. Mm-hmm. And I walked out of there. And now he retired after that. I don't know if it was because I all this stuff I dumped on him or not, but but uh, I went home that night and poured everything out and thought I'm going to change my life. And it lasted about four days. Yeah. Uh, I sold something at work. I was a commissioned salesman, been working on a deal. Poured it out to your wife? Yeah, I, oh. I, mean, I poured out all the booze in the house. Oh, 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 oh literally. Threw away the yeah. drugs yeah. and all of yeah. that. And um, she probably wondered, you know, something's finally working, you know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, four days later was Holy Thursday, and I'd been working on this big commission deal that was going to pay me more in one sale than I made all year. And a guy called, happened to call me that day and said, I want it, you know, come here and let me sign the paperwork. So I went down there and did that. And I, I, I just, I started to go home and I was excited, you know, just this endorphins fired off. And I think, I thought I need to celebrate. And for me, celebrating was doing drugs. So I was supposed to be picking up my son from my father-in-law's. And instead I took a detour and went to this drug dealer's house, ran in, bought the $40 with the cocaine and only bought. And next thing you know, I pull in a gas station down the road. And uh, I, I hear this whoop, whoop, siren behind me and the DEA's behind me. Hmm. They were watching this house and they were arresting people all day. So they grabbed me and pulled me out of the car, find the drugs, throw me in the back of a police car and take me down to jail in downtown Memphis. And hmm. at that point, I'm thinking, this is it. You know, I, and it's been several hours because they took me to a place to, you know, question me and all that. And then they took me to a place to bring me in to process me. Hmm. And um, we're sitting in this long line and these two police officers are kind of angry because they were about to get off work and now they got to stay late because of us, me and this other guy from the car. And I remember one of them looking in the rearview mirror, looking at me and I had my work stuff on. He goes, you don't look like you've ever been in trouble in your life. I said, I, I haven't, like I, I've never done, I just, I made some dumb choices. And, and I said, all I am is I'm worried about my wife. It's been three hours and she doesn't know where I am. And, 
He said, well, you know, we're not moving anywhere. I can get the phone out of the trunk. I can't uncuff you, but I'll you give me your number. I'll put it in and yeah. I'll call her before you put it to your ear. And the first thing yeah. he said was, well, I don't, I'm afraid of what she's going to say. And and he looked, I'll never forget. He was looking at me in that rearview mirror and he goes, is this about you or about her? And yeah. that's how my whole life had been. It was all about me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so he let I me thought call. You make a great point too about how the addiction just turns you in on yourself and makes mm-hmm. you more and more self-centered, self-focused. I need this, want this, do anything to have it, buy. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. it is. You just, everything, nothing nothing matters but what you want. It's yeah. really what it is. You're a good father when you want to be, yeah. a good husband when you want to be. Yeah. But other than that, it's like, I'm. In, my wife used to ask all the time, why don't we ever go out anymore? Why don't we ever go on a date or go to dinner or yeah. meet people? Yeah. It's because I was fine sitting on a couch with everything I had. Like, I didn't yeah. need to go anywhere else. Right. And And so... Um, but yeah, we're in that car and, and, and I called her and she answered and she said, Oh my gosh, where are you? I've been, I'm so worried. And my parents are calling people. I've been calling people. What happened? Where are you? And I said, Angela, I'm in the back of a police car about to go to jail. And she said, what happened? What happened? And I said, I, I was arrested for the possession of cocaine. And there was just silence. And she said, I hate you. And she yeah. hung up the phone. You know, she goes, I knew there was something like this going on. I hate you. Yeah. And at the time it didn't hurt because like, you know, it felt good for her to finally know, but to not good, but at least there was, she knows now. Yeah. And the other piece was just, I was more worried about, I've never been to jail. What's going to happen when I go in that place. Yeah. Memphis is one of the most crime ridden cities in the country. And I wasn't looking forward to whatever may happen when I went in there. Yeah. So they go in, they, you know, they take the mug shots, all those things. And about four in the morning, this is going on now, no food, nothing, um, I, they take me back to get clothes and all of that. And they give you a bag full of scrubs and stuff like that to put on and blankets. And there was a phone there you could use. I called her again at four in the morning and she said, John, I know where you are and I don't care. I've got to take the kids to school and go to work cause you're not here. Yeah. I hung up the phone and there was a whole law and order scene, man. You're in this line and then you turn down this, you know, cell block and, and, and we march down there and I'm holding all this stuff. And then I'm sitting in front of this cell. And the door opens and they tell us to walk in. I turn around and I see this door just very slowly just and shut and the lock snap. You know, like that's when I realized my life's over, right? I can't go anywhere if I don't, if I want to. Mm-hmm. If I want to go to the bathroom, it's in front of God and everybody, Yeah. you know. And, and so I was so tired. I turned around and looked at this nasty bunk bed and I took one of the blankets, threw it down and laid down and put one over me and fell asleep. Yeah. Right after that, like I woke up and, and I was still under the blanket. And I thought I'd had a nightmare. And I was like, oh, thank you, God. A lesson <laughs> learned, right? Like I'm never again. Yeah. I sit up and my head hits the bottom of a steel bunk bed. I oh. mean, for those listening, I'm six foot eight. So like it's, <laughs> it's hard to get under that bed in the first place. But yeah. I sat up, my head hit the bunk bed and I went, no, 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 no. And I threw my legs over the side and center block wall, a couple of feet from my face. And I start looking around and just rocking back and forth, just like on the toilet that night when I was on the commode that night when I was having that panic attack. And mm-hmm. I just started getting, no, 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 no. I'm going to, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my wife. I'm going to lose my kids, my job. Yeah. Everybody's going to find out. Everybody's going to know. And just yelling out loud in that cell, no, 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 no. And on the edge of feeling like I was about to have a heart attack, all of a sudden this just crazy peace came over me. And I remember stopping like in motion of rocking and, mm-hmm. and I just, all of a sudden I heard my own voice say, at least now I don't have to lie anymore. At least mm-hmm. now everyone will know the truth. Right. And it was like all this weight that I'd carried on my shoulders just fell off of me yeah. in an instant. And I remember thinking, 
okay, well, I have no, my wife's not going to come bail me out probably. I, I don't know. I haven't had another phone call. I don't know when I'm going to get out of here. All I can do is, is concentrate on what am I going to do when I get out of here? Yeah. And I started thinking about everything I've done in my life, about like how I may never have privileges to see my children again and how much time I wasted not being a good father and not spending time with them and the time with my wife that I, I treated her terribly. And then my mind went back to where did this start? And it went back to when I made the decision to quit going to church and quit mm-hmm. having a relationship with Christ. And I began to cry and I just was like, Jesus, I'm sorry. I, I know, like, I know it was immature of me to blame you for my mother and I know all these things and, and I'm so sorry for being selfish and for, for hurting people and for turning my back on you. And if you'll just give me another chance, I'll do whatever you want. I'll do whatever you mm-hmm. want. And all I want, I don't care about my job. I don't care if I lose that and the money and the house and anything else we yeah. have. Just give me a chance to be a good father and husband. Right. And I can remember looking back now, it was almost like he had his arm around me. And as much as I was crying and saying, I'm sorry, it was almost like he was saying, John, I was what you needed me to be, you know, but now I need you to be something different for me. Mm. And that's when we started having a conversation about what that meant. And I started remembering all these memories of being eight years old and talking to kids about Jesus and going to these mission trips and how joyful my life was. And I just said, regardless of whether I get the privilege of being with my wife and family, I'll serve you, whatever you want. I give you my life, mm. you know, and, and I mean, look where I landed trying to run my own life. <laughs> you know, I'll give you a shot. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the bailiff showed up shortly after that and the door opened and uh, she said, you have a visitor, and which surprised me. And I go and it's the law and order scene with the glass and the pay phones and the, yeah. and I sit down and she's crying. My mother-in-law's there and she looks like she's crying and wanting to murder me. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and I just start saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she says, stop. You know, Angela says, that's my wife's name, Angela. She said, stop. I need you to know I'm not going to divorce you. And it just shocked me. That was the first thing that she said. And she goes, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to, the, to do with the vows I made to God. And at that point, I was just like glad to hear she wasn't going to divorce me. And she said, yeah. I've made, I posted bail. You should be out by nine o'clock tonight. You can't come home. I'm going to go to my parents' house with the kids. Um, your your sister's going to come get you and you bring you by our house to get clothes. And then you're going to go to your dad's for the weekend in Mississippi, yeah. our farm. And so she left. I sat in the cell talking to Jesus for about six more hours. And uh, they called me to release me at nine o'clock. And when I walked outside expecting to see my sister, it was my father. Mm-hmm. Um, my father and I, I love him to death. He was a good father, but he was never a guy that, that said, I love you or I'm proud of you. You know, he was always, you know, you don't need that stuff. You should know it just because I work hard. You have a roof over your head. You have all that stuff. He was raised on a farm with six other siblings and they were treated sort of like farm hands and you just never saw them hugging or anything like that. And so I was like a little boy again, you know, that had broken something in the house, walking out to my father, wondering what's going to happen. And he just looked at me, and I'll never forget, he smiled at me, he said, I love you, John. And he hugged me, and he said, uh, let's get in the car and let's go. And he told me, you probably need to call your work. I looked down, and the, uh, my job had figured out what had gone on. And so I called my boss and told him. He said I had to be, a, you know, come there after I went to court Monday. Went by my house, and we went into the den where where uh, my kids were always playing. It was very hard mm-hmm. not seeing them there and not knowing if I'd be back or not. And that was the first time your father had told you something like that? He had said he loved me, you know, in yeah. passing, you know, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see him, I'd seen him cry once in my life yeah. when a guy that he worked with died that was sort of like a father figure yeah. to him. But 
it was just really what it means to be a man is to be stoic and to be you know right. self-sustaining uh, and yeah. all those things. So we got in the car and he took me to my house and I went in there where the kids were and it was very hard and grabbed clothes and we got in the car for this hour and a half ride to Mississippi and uh, we started talking about my mother, which is something we didn't talk about a lot. You know, it was very hard for him when she died and he blamed God too. And, and uh, I remember him asking me, and this was a very painful question. He said, John, is there something I did to cause this? Mm. Was I not a good father? You know, <laughs> sorry, he a little choked up just thinking mm -hmm. about it now. And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, I can't let, please don't let my mistakes convict you of something you didn't do. Yeah. I said, Dad, I, I made my own mistake, my own choices. Yeah. I'm an adult. Yeah. You know, and you didn't do anything wrong. And just was the realest conversation I ever had with my dad. And yeah. we get down there and go to bed. And the next day, Saturday, we wake up and my sister's there, one of my aunts. And my dad didn't want to tell my aunt because she was older and didn't want to, you know, have a health issue when she found out what had gone on. So long story short, I just felt very um, restless. And I knew my wife, she has this massive Italian family. So I knew Easter Sunday they were going to have a celebration. And, you know, I could hear them all in the kitchen, just there's a normally loud, noisy, mm -hmm. you know, and her walking in and just that, yeah. you know, elephant in the room. And I just the weight of that was crushing me. So Sunday morning I woke up and I had on Easter Sunday, I had the like the biggest desire to go to mass I'd, I'd had in 10 years. Like I never wanted to go to church. And I asked my dad if I could borrow his car. He said, yeah. Well, first of all, he said, what are you doing? You know, he, just, <laughs> you know, he thought I was going to make a run back to Memphis or, or uh -huh. some drugs. But. I just said, I'm going to go to town. There's there's that Catholic room there. You know, yeah. it was a little room. There was a sister that did communion services when the traveling priest wasn't able to come to that parish uh, or to that place for, for Mass. Mm -hmm. Angela and I had been there once years before for Christmas. And, I mean, it was five or six years ago. Never said anything. I think the priest introduced himself as we were leaving. But I go there and I pull up and I'm like, all right, I'm going to church. I'm going to Mass. And there's no cars there. And I'm looking at my phone. I'm like, "There's mass is supposed to be 11. It's 10.58. Where is everybody? And I started looking up. And I'm like, God, are you serious? For the first time in 10 years, I want to go to mass and I can't go. I started beating the steering wheel and crying, tears of yeah. anger. And next thing you know, this Jeep pulls in and the sister jumps out. She looks over and she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, yeah. I just want to go to mass. <laughs> she must have thought I was nuts. Yeah. But she said, there's too many people. We're, we've got to be in the agricultural, the 4-H center down the road. Oh. Do you know where it is? I said, yes, ma'am. We'd had family yeah. reunions there. So I run down there and I walk in and it's packed. There's families yeah. everywhere. There's going to have a potluck afterwards. And I walk in, I sit down, and it's the same priest from years before. Yeah. And he says, he starts the homily. And it's, there's a lot of uh, Latinos in there, a lot of Spanish-speaking people in there. So he does it in English and Spanish. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful. Like the homily's just given me a lot of, of, of hope uh, for the future. But I didn't want to stay. As soon as Mass was over, I didn't, I didn't want to be around a bunch of people with their kids and family. It was hard. And so I went for the door, and next thing you know, I feel a hand hit my shoulder. And I turned around thinking, like, who's grabbing? I don't know anybody in here. He's grabbing me. And it's this priest. And he says, hello, John. And it startled me because I was like, how does he know my name? You know. Yeah. And, and he said, I don't know what you're doing here alone or where your family is, but God wants me to tell you everything's going to be all right. Mm. And I just looked at him, and I was about to say, how, did, how do you know? And he just said, you know, I'll be praying for you, John. He turned around and he walked off. Mm. And so I got in the car and, and I just sped back to my dad's and I felt my heart lift. Yeah. I was like, God's going to give me another chance and I'm not going to squander it. And so I stayed at my dad's that night. I hadn't talked to my wife since Friday or when, when, when she was in jail. Um, and we had to be back at court Monday morning. 
So I went to court. I went in there. I pled guilty, and they put me on a program to let me um, be on probation and take drug tests and all these things. And it was wiped off my record after a year if I was able to do those things without messing up, which I was. I was able to do that. Then I had to go to work, and they had all kind of questions. You know, have you done this? Did you do it at work? Have you done it here? You know, all of this stuff. And I was yes and no and answers. No, yes, no, yes, no. Mm-hmm. And they're going, do you have somewhere to be? Like, you know, this is your job. Do you not care? Yeah. So look, I've been here 23 years. I've never made a mistake. I've never been in trouble. But the one thing that's important to me right now is my wife and my kids. And I've made my mind up. I want to go to rehab. I'm going to check myself in, and I'm waiting for this to be over so I can go do that. And, you know, my they said, well, is that court ordered? I said, no, I, I want to prove to my wife I'm serious. So my dad drug me, uh, drove me down to this place and he walked in with me and it just, it was horrible. You know, father, it was just one person after another was just hooked on heroin or crystal meth and guys were coming in scratching their arms and bleeding because they thought they had yeah. stuff on them. And yeah. I just told my dad, I said, will you just, will you go to the car? Like, yeah. I just, I don't want you to have to see this dad. And so he did after arguing with him a minute. And then they called me back to the second waiting room and like I said, it was just families would open the door and they'd have their brother or their sister by like the back of their shorts and the collar of their neck and just throw them in the floor and say, take them. I'm done. Like this is the 15th yeah. time I'm done. Yeah. He tore up my house. He stole my car. He yeah. whatever. And I just, I couldn't take it. Right. And I look over and there's this newspaper laying next to me and I just picked it up and just put it in front of me. <laughs> right. So I didn't have to see it. Well, the door where people were coming in was over my right shoulder. Yeah. And the door just one would open and, and I'd hear it just one after another, worse than the next. Then the door opened and I didn't hear anything and nobody walked by. And I lowered the, the top corner of the right side of the newspaper and I look up and it's my wife who I haven't talked to in since, you know, Friday. Mm-hmm. I guess she had texted my dad and he told her where we were. And she, she looked at me and she said, John, I, I'm, I'm so hurt and I'm angry, but I can't let you go through this alone. And she sat down with me and we went back into the assessment period. And the lady said, I needed 30 days outpatient. And my wife was like, no, you need to put him under the place and like <laughs> make sure this is fixed. <laughs> all of that. But um, I thought I was, my dad was going to have to drive me back every day. You know, it uh-huh. would have been hard on him. It was an hour one yeah. way. And my wife looked at me and she said, you need to come home. She said, I, I, you can't sleep in the bed with me. I'm not, I can't be that close to you mm-hmm. right now. But one of my daughters, Allison, it, has asked me if you're dead. Because it had been several days since they'd seen me, and mm-hmm. it had never been like that. So I just hugged her and said, thank you for letting me come home. And that night I, I went home, and she slept in my son's room, which was across from my bedroom, and I could see the bed. I, I'd gotten into our bed, and I was kind of joyful to be home in my house. You know, there's my TV and the air conditioning and food that doesn't look like pig slop. <laughs> all of this, you know. Right. And, and so I'm kind of going, this is awesome, okay? I'm back in my place. And then I looked across the hallway and I saw the shape of my wife under those covers. I used to say lump, and she said, don't say lump anymore, say shape or something else. So, That's so, not the delicate form yeah, of my wife. She's like, the beautiful form of your wife would be more accurate. But I see it, and, and the smile that I had on my face about being back in this comfortable place just vanished. Because I, I, I said, what good is it going to be if I quit drinking and doing drugs, but I'm not any different of a person? Yeah. And so I felt this overwhelming desire to, to, to read the Bible. And I started tearing through my side of the room, which was dumb. I should have looked on her side of the room because there was probably 30 Bibles mm-hmm. over there and all sort of books, that, you know, Catholic books. And I opened the drawer to my bedside table and there's mm-hmm. Father Larry Richard's Be a Man book. 
Mm-hmm. My father-in-law had given that to me, trying to get me. He knew things weren't right in my life. Mm-hmm. Everybody saw how much I drank and stuff. They didn't know what else I was doing. And I opened it, and I saw the first three pages where I'd started underlining things. And I remember from five years before, I'm going to change my life. And I just let the drugs overcome me again. Yeah. So that night, I read it cover to cover. And Angela woke up in the morning, and I'd just finished the book. And she said, what are you doing up so early? I said, I never went to sleep. So I've read this book and I understand now the mistakes I've made and what I should have been and the man I need to be. And I promise you I'm going to be that. And of course she was like, yeah, okay, we'll see, you know, cause she was hurt and she mm-hmm. just didn't know what to expect. So long story short, I said, you know what, I'm going to start doing the things I used to do. I'm going to start reading the Bible again. I'm going to get my own Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to start reading books about the Catholic faith. I'm going to take this seriously. And I started going to mass, you know, and I started leading my family to mass. I was the first one dressed. I was, you know, making sure the kids were, you know, had children's magnificats and all those things. And, and um, I was doing well. And then one day I was still on probation. Or I was still my, off work for 30 days until I went back to court. Yeah. I'm dropping the kids off in my father-in-law's Tahoe because my car is still impounded. And the world had sort of found out at that point as far as my work. And customers started just texting me going, I, you know, I can't believe you did this all these years. You're not the person I thought you were. You're a you know, blah, 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 blank, blank. And I'll never buy from you again. And just all of that hit me. Yeah. And I thought, man, my family's now going to suffer financially. And what have I done? And what am I going to do now? I don't have a college degree. And sitting in that church parking lot, again, I started beating the steering wheel like I did at the church when the, nobody was there. And I see the pastor at the time who I had baptized my children, but that was the extent of our relationship, walking across the parking lot. And I just thought, I know he's going to 815 Mass, and all I want to do is hide from the world. No one would ever look for me in there. Mm. And so I went in the church, and I remember grabbing that door going in the church and kind of feeling like, seriously, you're going to go in here, you hypocrite, you know? <laughs> but I went in anyway, and there was about three or four elderly people, mm. you know, probably retired, 70, 80 years old. And I just kind of looked at them, and I'm six foot eight, so I stick out like a sore mm. thumb no matter where I'm in, where, I'm, where I am. So, I went to the Joseph side and I knelt and, and I just, I felt so awkward because I'd never really paid attention in mass to know what to say. I was always covered by the mass of people and you know, you could fake, you knew everything. Yeah. Well, you couldn't in there because everybody could hear a pin drop. So I just felt really self-conscious. And then I started to cry that I hadn't, you know, I, that I hadn't spent more time in learning my faith and this faith that I adopted. The priest gives the homily. First of all, the scriptures he was reading. There was no lector, and he was reading. And the readings just spoke to me where I was and, and spoke of hope and changing and, and all of these things. And then he gave a homily about that. And I just I started realizing about halfway through the homily, I was just sobbing. And I was trying to keep quiet, and I could tell people were looking at me. And finally, I was like, oh, thank goodness we're getting to the, you know, to the Eucharist and the consecration. And I heard every word of that for the first time in my life. And mm. I started to realize the beauty of it and how it mirrored just everything in the scriptures and, and, the, and the crucifixion and all of those things and everything, Jesus' passion and all of that. And I hadn't put it together until then. Mm. And I just started crying even harder. And I was the first one on the Joseph side out of like six people in there. And, I, you know, I, the, he come, the priest comes down to, to obviously give us communion and, and I look up and he's looking at me and he's waving me up and I'm just, I'm no, I'm shaking my head no. And he continues to wave me up. And, and I know one thing, I'm not supposed to go take communion if I haven't been to confession, right? right. So I'm not, I'm trying not to go, but he yeah. keeps just 
emphatically telling me to come. Yeah. And when I got up there, he looked right at me. He had no idea what was going on with me, but he held the Eucharist right up in my face. And he said, this is the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And he put it in my hands. And when it hit my hands, I just, I, I believed it for the first time ever. Yeah. And, I, and I took the Eucharist and, and uh-huh. he pointed me to the cup and I went over there and I went back to the pew and I knelt and I, I cried and I prayed so hard. I don't remember what I prayed, but I, when I, when I, the next thing I remember, a hand hit my shoulder and it was the priest. They had ended mass and processed out and I never even realized it. Hmm. And again, I'm looking up at a priest with a hand on my shoulder and he says, John, what are you doing here? Which was a valid question for someone to <laughs> right, ask. Right. I wasn't a guy you'd see around yeah. at mass by myself, especially. And as soon as he saw my face, he said, come with me. Hmm. And I realized we were tracking towards the confessional. And I remember thinking, I don't want to go in there. Last time I went in there, I wound up getting arrested. <laughs> but he told me to come in, and, and he asked me everything. I, I laid it out for him. I was trying to beat up on myself. And he said, John, you, you, you're here to confess. Yeah. We're going to get past it. And, uh, and so he gave me absolution. I got up to leave, and he said, you're not ready to go yet. Sit back down. And, and he said, uh, you know, you don't have to be at work for a month, so I expect to see you here every day uh, for daily mass. Uh, if you notice, I didn't have a lector. Um, you're going to need a lector. And I was like, what's a lector? I didn't know. <laughs> and he said, I was reading. I'm going to teach you to do yeah. that. So you're going to do that. And then you're going to come to confession every Friday until I tell you different. Yeah. And it, saved, it really saved my life. And it, it showed yeah. me somebody believed in me and that I could be different. And so a year goes by and, and I'm doing all these things. I'm still trying to prove to my wife that I'm becoming different, trying to heal those wounds. And Finally, God tells me one day, John, there's one opinion that you need to worry about. It's mine. I'll handle your wife coming around. You need to worry about what I needed from you yeah. and what you can do that I want you to. So she asked me to get involved in the parish. I started doing the stuff dads do, coaching and cooking barbecue and all those things. But nobody knew. And a year later, that same men's conference comes up and I go listen to the speakers. And there's a young man that gets up and he he shares his story and, and he's had a similar story and it touched my heart. And I'm just like, man, I can't believe that 20 year old kid got up there and poured his heart out to a thousand men. So I found him afterwards and I said, you know, that meant so much to me and I have a similar story. Well, later that night we had a fundraiser at our parish and there was a, one, a guy from my parish that I'd seen at the event. I wasn't with him, but that night he was at the fundraiser and he was sort of running around excited. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, like I went to this thing today. and Man, I, conf- I went to confession for the first time in 23 years. Yeah. And he starts telling everybody what he confessed. And some of it was not stuff you needed to say in front of women and children. Right. And so I was like, hey, Jay, settle down. Like, <laughs> take in the shower egg. You know, like, let's stop talking about uh-huh. some of that stuff. Uh-huh. And he's like, I, John, I don't understand why I feel like this. I felt like this all day and I can't calm down. And I started laughing. I said, Jay, that's the Holy Spirit. I'd been to plenty of events growing up in the church, Baptist church, to understand what it felt like when right. you encountered the Spirit. And so I just said, Jay, that's, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. And he goes, well, I'm cradle Catholic. I should know what that is, but I, I, I don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. I know about God and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me? And so I started to tell him, and then all of a sudden I feel the devil just start accusing me. Who do you think you are? You, 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 you cokehead, you crackhead, you, you know, you really think you ought to be talking to anybody about Jesus, you hypocrite. Yeah. And so I stopped. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, Jay, you should just talk to, you know, Father Martell's over there, Father Robbie's over there. You know, they're busy tonight, but I guarantee you they'll set up a time to talk to you. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. He's like, no, I want you. Like, you're speaking in my language. Like, I understand what you're saying. So what I'm saying, like, half the time I don't know what the Holy Spirit is because I don't understand the way people are talking to me about it. Mm-hmm. And I said, Jay, I, I, I just can't. I can't. I can't. And he just kept pestering me. 
he's a sales guy too, so he finally got his yes. <laughs> and uh, and he said, let me just take you to pizza Tuesday night. We'll get a beer and pizza. I said, okay, all right, I'll do it. Just leave me alone. Yeah. And so the next day I wake up and I'm thinking, Lord, what did I get myself into? He's going to expect me to drop all this knowledge and I, who am I? Mm. And so I got out the Bible and followed Larry's book and I started looking at things I'd highlighted. And next thing you know, all this memorization and this knowledge I'd had as a young Baptist came back. And and I was, before you know it, I had six pages of legal pad filled out with stuff from about the Holy Spirit from the the, the Ruah, the breath over the, over the water mm. in Genesis all the way through Pentecost and beyond. And mm. so I show up and I look like a lawyer. I got books open everywhere and he walks up and he sits down and he's excited. And I go through it all and he says, man, that was amazing. You should start a men's group. You need to start a men's group. And I go, no, man, no. I told you I'd come do this. This is it. Like mm-hmm. I told you, there's no more favors, no more asking. Why not? Why not? Why not? And I kept feeling like he's not going to leave me alone until I tell him why. Mm-hmm. And I felt convicted by the Spirit for the first time to tell anybody that didn't automatically know in family or something like that. I said, Jay, I can't do it. I, I'm, I used to do coke, like not like part time. I was, a, you know, I was, a, I was a, an addict for 17 years of my life. You know, I was a terrible husband and a father. I'm still not that great of a husband and a father. And I, I have no business leading men anywhere, you know. And, and I said, and I just, I, I'm afraid of what people will know, do if they find out. And, and I say all that and I'm expecting them to go like, check, you know, and get up and leave. And he goes, wow, that's amazing. You should start a men's group. <laughs> and I, I literally was like, did you not hear what I just said? Like, I. Why would you think? And yeah. I don't, John's amazing. Like, we could start a group and we could do it together. And so I said, you're nuts, but okay, like, I, I will. Mm-hmm. So we called a bunch of men. It was about 30 men together in the parish. Some he knew, some I knew. And a week later, we invited them all to this room, and we didn't tell them why. Uh, we told me there, there'd be beer there. So we knew they would show up. So um, I walk up to the door that night. It's dark outside. I could see them, but they couldn't see me because it was dark outside. And I go to reach for the door. And as soon as I hit that door, I was already nervous and scared because I knew I was going to have to share my life with them. And when I hit my hand at the door, it was just like I heard not a physical voice, but in my head, I started hearing, what are you doing? You're going to lose everything, right? You're comfortable. Like no one knows now and you're able to go on about your life. If you tell people you're going to lose things, they're going to kick your kids out of school. They're going to kick you out of the parish. Think about what they'll think of your wife. And I let go of the door. Like I physically let go and I turned to leave. And I got about three steps. And then I heard basically like what you hear described in the Old Testament. You know, God's not in the, in the earthquake or in the storm. It's in the whisper. And I just heard this other voice say, John, you promised me you'd be different. You promised me when you walked out that door, you'd be different. Mm-hmm. And I turned around, I looked at the door, and I walked back, and I opened it and stepped in. And by that time, it was too late. They'd seen me. You know, I couldn't run or say, Rube's wrong room or something like that. And they said, John, what are we doing here? Like, what are we, we're sitting here, and where's Jay and the beer and all that? And <laughs> I didn't know he was a perpetually late guy or showed up later. But <laughs> he he comes in and, and sloshing the cooler around, and I said, all right, we can start. You know, mm-hmm. Guys, we have a great fundraising group in the parish. We cook barbecue. We, we raise money for buildings or for kids jerseys or for basketballs but we never talk about jesus or god unless the priest is there to bless the food and that's it and i said and and let me tell you what an issue that can be in your life if that's the extent of your relationship with christ and i just went you've been going to daily mass regular confession praying i started to see the difference in my life and and uh and that my life had changed and my perspective and my desires had changed so I told him that, and I just went blah, and I told him everything I've been telling you and your mm-hmm. listeners for the last few minutes. And, and uh, 
I was crying and I was scared and I was worried. And these guys' eyes were getting bigger and bigger by the second. And I was basically awaiting this judgment. I figured it was coming. And it was really surprised nobody had gotten up and left in the middle of it. I sat down and I said, that's all I got. Like, I, I think we should start a men's group. I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, but if you want to hang around, stay and we'll figure it out. If not, you can leave. I know you didn't know why you're here and this isn't entrapment. You know, you yeah. can go. The guy next to me stands up, Jay, the guy who asked me to do it, and I thought he was going to be the one to leave. I was about to get upset. It's like, you got me into this. You're leaving. Uh, but when I looked up, he was crying, you know, and he just said, man, I'm a terrible father. I, like, I spend, I care more about my work and money by the way I spend my time, you yeah. know. Uh, the next guy said, I'm addicted to porn, and my wife's about to leave me. Another guy said, I'm getting a divorce, and none of you know it. Uh, another guy said, I Ubered here. I'm drunk. I've been in a hotel room drinking all day after fighting with my wife. And it was just like... One after another, guys would sit up crying, just spout out what was wrong with them and sit down. Mm. And it made it all the way around this room. Every guy stood up and spoke. And that's when I realized the power of vulnerability uh, in, in, in my life and in, in the power of vulnerability with other people. Mm-hmm. That it's, it's when I realized that everybody in the world has something wrong. We're all broken. You, know, you see these Facebook pictures of like everybody in their elf outfits for Christmas and they're all smiling and and you're right. like, you know that didn't happen like that. Kids are getting yelled at. <laughs> yeah. Husband and wife are fighting. And it took three hours yeah. to get that picture. But that's the way we go about our life. We present that there's nothing wrong with us. Right. And we spend all this time and energy to put up all these masks and these facades. I recognized it because I was this guy at the bar. I was this guy at work. I was this guy at church. I was this guy. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, all those masks fell off all of us. Yeah. And I realized like other guys were going, you can say stuff like that. And no one makes fun of you and nobody's like leaving and nobody's, I've got stuff too, right? And, and I need to share. Yeah. And all of a sudden this became a place where men could come and they could be real and they could be authentic uh-huh. and they could meet the love of Christ and other brothers yeah. and start to realize like, I don't have to live by myself as this one man army. I've got people that are willing to do life with me and willing to, to admit their own faults. And this is a safe place for me. Yeah. And so it, it made me realize that there's two definitions of, of vulnerability. You have the world's definition, which is if you're a man, you, should, you shouldn't be vulnerable at all, right? You should work hard, never complain, put your head down, don't have feelings, don't have emotions. You know, that's not manly. And you're not a man if you can't figure it out on your own. And then you have like the world that tells you if you do need help, then you're weak and you're unmasculine and all that. And so that's why guys never share. And they spend all their lives bottled up and, and you know, bottled up in addictions, or other things besides God. And then I started to read scriptures and I saw this passage where God is, St. Paul's wrestling with a thorn in his side. And he says, mm-hmm. God, please take this away three times. And, yeah. and God says, no, my power is made perfect in weakness. And I was like, like what does that mean? <laughs> my power is made perfect. It's like an oxymoron, yeah. you know, power and weakness. And then I read on and St. Paul says eventually like, you know, um, if I'm to if I'm to boast, let me boast of my hardships, my difficulties, my burdens, uh, my wounds. Because when I when I'm weak, I'm strong. And it hit me. I was like, it's in our vulnerability is where we show true strength. Mm. When we admit we need God, right, and that we we humble ourselves enough to need Him. Right. And so that night we started a men's group that's been meeting for five years ever since then. All day, I mean, every week besides Christmas and Thanksgiving. And it meets as a big group. As a big group, yeah. Bigger. We sit in a room. We don't break into small groups. We we use materials like our narrow road resources that yeah. we have in the ministry, yeah. or we use some some conference materials that we yeah. have through another thing that I do, and we just have something to get us going. Yeah. And then the men and, just open up and talk. And do they? Well, they, does it kind of naturally happen that maybe they 
maybe kind of towards the end, do they break off a little bit smaller? Is there deeper sharing among one or two or three? Honestly, or it... it's, it's, I think it's just like with everything, you know, Jesus had his three that he, you know, yeah, he had yeah. his inner circle. Right. I think people have those, yeah. but when we're there, there's this, it's, it's just this beautiful thing of guys are, they walk in and it's like, you can almost, it's almost like taking off your top coat and your hat and putting on the thing and going and yeah. relaxing. Yeah. And that's what happens. It's like guys are leaving all that worldly stuff at the door. Yeah. And they're coming in and saying, I don't care who's in here because I know I can trust these guys. Uh-huh. I know they love me and I love them. Yeah. And we're going to do life together. And so no one really, you might have somebody new come in and go like, I, I may not feel comfortable yet. But eventually they start seeing these other guys being open. And it's just intoxicating. It's just like, I want to be able to share too. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference. Like, I want to say that. There's a difference between being vulnerable with people that you know and you love and you trust. I'm not saying go get on a parade yeah. float and start yeah. with a megaphone telling everybody you got a porn problem. Right. That's not a smart thing to do. Right. But when you have people in your life that you can trust, then, it, then it, it's, it's a right place to do it. And God wants us in community. And that's the thing. You know, being in ministry now and writing materials and going on shows and having a podcast, there's a lot of those guys that say thank you to me, right? I, could, I'm not, I wouldn't be the man I am if it weren't for you. Yeah. And I look at them and, and try to do it. I'm trying to do it right now without crying. I'm like, you have no idea how wrong you are. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't be able to do the things that I'm doing if it wasn't for you. Right. You know, if I didn't have you in my life, you yeah. know, if, if, if it wasn't for this group of men that, that keeps everything grounded and humble. And, and it's, that's, that's all I want to do in my life now is to help men find that same thing. And so that's where the podcast came from. The diocese started catching wind of all these guys just started showing up. You know, I'm looking at guys, where are these dudes coming from? You know, and... Mm-hmm. And some guys would walk in, I'd say, hey, where are you from? And they go, I'm, uh, well, a friend of mine from work told me to come here. I'd say, oh, what parish do you go to? And they'd say, what's a parish? And I go, where are you from, man? Like, <laughs> I'm from Christ Methodist down the road. And uh-huh. I go, wow, how did you find your way here? Uh-huh. And that's when they'd say, well, man, I got this buddy at work, and he's been talking about this group and how he can be himself. And uh-huh. these guys would come in, and they just, same thing. You'd see their eyes open up. And couple months later, you'd see them talking to the priest because I always had a priest come and they would, most of them would pop their collar off, not to be disrespectful, but to say, I'm one of your brothers, you know, I'm here. Yeah. Don't be intimidated by this. Right. And um, and I would see them talking to the priest and next thing you know, I'd go to the Catholic bookstore and I'd, they'd be coming out with books on Mary and stuff. And next thing you know, they were in RCIA and they're becoming Catholic. Now you had how many? You had, a had like nine in the first year become Catholic. Wow. And all of them said, People would ask me, Where, how are you catechizing these people? I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But you know, <laughs> I was like, I, I know what the catechism is. I assume you're asking me, like, how, do we, how are we teaching someone the faith? And uh, Would the I, format be like somebody would give a talk? And no, then, we would... just would. In the beginning, I, I put out pieces of paper and said, what are you guys struggling with? Write it down in mm-hmm. a couple of words. And it was so much of the same stuff. You know, dealing, uh, hand, being the, the dad, being present at home and not carrying work in with me. You know, not being angry at my wife and kids because of work stress, drinking too much, porn, anger, unforgiveness. I mean, and they were multiple versions of the same thing written different ways. And so we would pull those out of a hat and I said, all right, guys, I bet nobody in here struggles with anger. And they'd get a laugh. And then one guy would say, I do. And I want to know, is there such a thing as justified anger? Yeah. You know, is there something as righteous anger? And so we'd go looking at scriptures and we'd look at, 
you know, Jesus turning over the tables in the temple and we look at yeah. why that happened and the difference between just being mad at something and being righteously angry and mm-hmm. the fact that God gives us emotions for a reason to, to use them, but we have to use them in the right way. And we would just talk about those things and every one of us would leave feeling like some sort of burden was just lifted off of us. Didn't mean we were fixed. Didn't mean we were healed. But guys would start going to confession. They'd start going to mass. You'd see them in adoration. They'd start going to Curcio and things like that. And and people just started transforming. And, and, you know, it was really, now that I look back at it, it's sort of like what Jesus did. Like Jesus didn't walk up to Matthew and say, mm-hmm. hey, Matthew, here's these 617 Levitical laws. Mm-hmm. Memorize these and then come follow me. Yeah. No, he's, what do you see? What are you looking for? Right. And so that's kind of what we were doing, whether we knew it or not. And these men were finding something there. And then along the way, I started going, okay, well, this is great. We got a lot of men coming and there's people from all of the diocese and it's growing, but it's not about the numbers. It's about people's individual progress. And like, we can't just show up and talk about how terrible we are all the time. We've got to be better, right? Now there's the discipleship piece. So I had a lot of guys that were calling me. I was still working at at the auto parts place. I hadn't moved into full-time ministry yet. And guys would call me every week and they hey, John, my life stinks, man. My wife and I are fighting. My kids are at odds. My job is terrible. And I'd listen to them for an hour, an hour and a half. And I'm going like, man, I'm supposed to be working, you know. And, <laughs> and I don't understand the scriptures. And I'd say, well, today this is what I think it means. And that makes sense. Thanks, you know. And mm-hmm. they'd hang up the phone. Mm-hmm. Well, I started to realize as I was in adoration one day, I, I was like, God, I don't, I feel like we've made progress, but the, no, I, People have to live it now, right? We can't just yeah. go there and dump our problems. We have to go live the life you called right. us to. So it was like, how do I do that? And I, I, over time praying over a few weeks, I just sort of heard him saying, John, what you're doing is great, but you've become a crutch for these men. Like you're doing all the work. Yeah. And yes, they're sharing and yes, they're mm-hmm. opening up, but are they praying every day when they're not with you? Are they going to mass when they're not with you? Are they, you know, are they growing on their own? So this one guy called me one week and, I, and, and the Lord had just said, you, you got to make them stand on their own two feet. And I'm not trying to, I mean, I said it in humility. Yeah. I'm not trying to brag on what I was doing. Yeah. It's just, it was obvious that guys were sort of leaning on it instead of mm-hmm. doing it themselves. And so I just heard God kind of tell me to take the crutch away. So this guy called and he started in on it. I said, hey, before you get started, have you prayed? No. Have you been to mass? No. Have you been to confession, adoration? Have you done anything spiritual? No. Call me back when you've done anything. And he what? And I hung up the phone. And he was mad. You know, he yeah. called me back that night and he said, I can't believe you hung up on me. Uh-huh. And I said, Well, what's happened? What have you done differently? Yeah. yeah. I went to mass and I, or I went to church and I sat in front of the tabernacle and I prayed. Yeah. So how do you feel? Yeah. I feel better. Mm. I feel my head's cleared. I I realize that I've been a jerk to my wife and I've been my kids are angry because they want my time and I'm not giving it to them. And I was like, wow, you got all that from sitting in front of the tabernacle for 10 mm-hmm. minutes. Think about what you could get if you gave your whole life to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And so through that, I started thinking, how can I help people do this? And a buddy of mine, Ryan, and I met, uh, who's on my board, Ryan Foley, he works for Covenant Eyes. And uh, he just said, your ministry is leading men from vice to virtue. And you need, maybe God's asking you to give them the steps to do that, the things you've been mm-hmm. doing in your own life. So we came up with a narrow road. It's a resource for men. It's a monthly book that you know guys sign up for. It's twenty dollars on the on the site. They get the book every month that focuses on a singular virtue. So like this month in August, August it's courage, and so there's five reflections in there. There's the virtue one on the virtue from the Catechism, the Scriptures, my own thoughts and feelings about courage. Um, then there's one for each week. There's four weeks. 
You focus on that on working that virtue in the four main weeks of your life or four main relationships of your life. God first, foremost. If that's not right, nothing else will be. Your wife, your kids, and your neighbor. And so you're not just saying, I'm, I want to be courageous and mm-hmm. hope it happens that day. Yeah. You're actually seeking opportunities in your life in these small moments, which is where we learn virtue. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, world-saving opportunities out there where you can be like Braveheart or something like that and live virtue mm-hmm. that way. You, you find them in the small moments so of your life if you're looking for them, choosing the right things, the hard things. Yeah. And so we put together this book that basically has an opportunities for grace chart with 10 simple things I did in my life, morning prayer, daily mass, adoration, confession, time with my wife, time with my kids, night prayer, Sunday mass. And there's the days of the month and guys can, you want, you want to grow in your faith? You want to mm-hmm. grow? You want more grace? Here's some opportunities. Go live these things in your life and guys can check the box. They're not check the box things. They're mm-hmm. meant to grow in their relationship with Christ, but yeah. now they can be positive about the things. They can physically look at what they're doing differently in their life, right? And they can be happy about that. Then, as you go into the week, you look at your plan, and here's the virtue of courage. The root sin is fear. Here's where I see it in my life. And you're honest. You write out, "I'm afraid we won't have enough money. I'm afraid of giving more of my life to God. I'm afraid I'm going to lose people if I if I start worshiping God more publicly." Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so things like that. And then they have, there's a prayer every month for the virtue. So they're praying to God to help them for the virtue. And they're Catholic, old Catholic prayers that have been around forever. Then they go to day one and there's a thought from the church, which is a quote from a priest, a, a saint, a pope, a bishop, mm-hmm. and that, you know, see what the church thinks about that virtue. And then they say the prayer every day. And then there's the daily gospel readings or the daily gospel, not the first reading, but the, the daily gospel tells them if it's a, a feast day or a special day like that. But the gospel readings in there, so one that men are reading scripture. I think that's one of the biggest problems is most men, a lot of Catholics don't read, men or women read the Bible every day. Mm-hmm. We sort of have the snapshot of the Magnificat every day and you're not getting before and after, and especially if you're not going to daily mass. Right. So trying to get people to start reading the scriptures. And we ask two simple questions every day. What is God saying to you in this gospel? And then secondly, uh, how have you lived this virtue out in your relationship with God this week or your wife? Or and the, the meeting you all have is how often? Is we meet every Wednesday, so four times a month. Oh, wow. okay. At first, people were thinking, like, this is too much. But we come to realize, like, we need this in our life every week. Yeah. You know, we have plenty of opportunities to get beat on and to get, you know, tortured by the world and tormented mm-hmm. by the devil. We need a place every week where we can come together and, yeah. and strengthen ourselves. You know, yeah. it's it's kind of funny. You know, it's if you've ever been camping... And you're just, you know, you're looking at a guy face to face. You're like, hey, how's your, you know, how's your life? I'm fine. Yeah. But you build a fire and you stand shoulder to shoulder and you start staring at yeah. it and the guy will pour his soul out to you. Yeah. You know, because yeah. he's not looking at you. He's concentrating on that fire and, and he'll pour his soul out to you. And it's the same sort of thing. That's our sort of campfire moment every week is to come together and, mm. and just be with each other and pray for each other. And I mean, there's prayer intentions and all those things that happen. We, we lift up the priest and, the, and all religious and anyone leading the faith that they have the courage to preach truth, no matter the difficulty in it. And so and that, so that, well, the four meetings for that particular month, mm-hmm. you're sharing on the narrow road. Work, we do, you know, we do. Yeah. So we, you know, we've used that. Um, it's, I'll admit it's a little awkward for me to walk in a room and say, Hey guys, read what I wrote and watch yeah, me on the screen. Yeah. So we also developed another thing we do where, um, and it works really well for getting new guys in that are afraid. You know, guys started hearing like the football coaches and some of the more guys that see themselves as manly, I don't need God kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they caught wind that there's a bunch of guys in there bearing their soul and there's tears in there and they're like, I'm not going yeah, in there. Yeah. So we started coming up with something called the four pillars and this is something we're building into the ministry as well. And really you take those four nights and I looked at the early church and I said, what did they do? You know, how did they come together in their lives? And so you have formation night, the first night of the month, we'll watch something. And if it's lust, then that's what we focus on all month instead of mm-hmm. talking about four different things. So we actually spend a whole month focusing on something or a virtue. Then uh, the next night is uh, worship. So mm-hmm. one of the priests comes to join us and either does a special adoration, one of them does, it's amazing, or we do a mass and adoration and confession so that men are getting an opportunity for two sacraments and adoration right. in one night outside of their own time to go if they go at all. Then the third night is service. So we go and we serve. We go feed children at the children's hospital. Mm-hmm. We go and Catholic charities and put together food packages or make homeless bags on our own for, for the homeless to give out on the street corners to people. And uh, then the fourth night is fellowship. So we'll go throw axes and drink beer or we'll, mm-hmm. we'll uh, go bowling or throw, play cornhole or just go sit in somebody's backyard and watch a ball game. Mm-hmm. And I started looking at the early church and was like, what did they do? Well, Jesus formed them, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, he taught them. Then they worshiped together, whether it was after the Last Supper or or you know through the Jewish way before, yeah. uh, and then service. They obviously there's tons of stories in the Bible where they serve the poor and heal the sick and all those things. And then four, you can't tell me this is what people love about the show The Chosen so much, is that they're seeing what happened beyond the stories, right? Or right. what people imagine would have happened. Yeah. And you can't tell me that after a long day of seeing all this awesome stuff Jesus did, they didn't pull over on the side of the road and have some fish and some wine and and, and just kind of like fellowship with each other. They loved each other, so they spent time together. So we do that, and it brings in different people. That that guy that's you know scared of coming. I don't want to say scared, but not mm-hmm. comfortable coming in the the worship night where guys are pouring their souls out, or the the formation night. They drive by and they see us out at the parish playing cornhole and having a beer, and they see their buddies and go, "Those aren't just all weird Jesus Bible beating mm-hmm. freaks in there, right?" They're, yeah, it's my friends. Right. I'll come have a beer, and next thing you know, what do you do next? Well, we we serve, and they go to a hospital, and they see a kid in a NICU with tubes up his nose and his mother who hasn't slept in days and he brings yeah. food. Now, is that, is that, that's during the meeting or is that a retreat? Like four that's, days? No, that's during the meeting. So what, okay. what we'll do now, uh-huh. um, as I said, the group moved away from the narrow road, not because it wasn't productive. It was just because of my, it was hard for me to be in there saying, watch me, listen yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah. And this seemed to be working well. Okay. okay. So uh, it gave all these different people different places. You want to come to, in the, in the very beginning, I was always worried about numbers. Yeah. You know, who was there, who wasn't. I asked yeah. all these people at Mass. And I would find myself looking out the window at who was coming instead of who was there. Yeah. So I learned very quickly, it's who's there. The rest yeah. is up to God. Yeah. And then I'd start to see men, you know, well, they're only coming to the fellowship night. And they're not coming to the other. And I'd get upset about it. And then I'd pray about it. And God would say, John, they're coming. Like, just let me mm-hmm. let me worry about that. Yeah. And I've seen so many men start on the fellowship end and work their way into the formation end. Right. And so it's been really helpful. And it's developing relationships with guys. A lot of guys get to know each other because they are drinking a beer and they're not, you know, sitting in a room where they're watching a video about the faith or something. It's more of an open area for them to talk. And mm-hmm. and then they, you know, they they move into the into the more serious function. And next you know, you've got to Sort of, you're, you're, you're really talking to the whole person, right? We all like to fellowship. We all like to worship. We all like to serve. We all like yeah. to, 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 to grow in knowledge. Right. And so you're kind of feeding that whole person instead of just a part of it. 
Yeah. And people like that, you know, because they feel like they're getting a whole experience instead of just come here to this Bible study and we're going to do the same thing every week yeah. or yeah. or whatever it is. So we've been doing that and had a lot of success with it. And uh, the parish is, I really believe if we get to the heart of men and you start changing men's hearts, that you're going to start changing the church. You know, just from our own parish, the women started to see all this we were doing. And like the wives would say, we, we're jealous. We want something like that. Like, yeah. all you guys are doing all this and you're best yeah. friends. And, yeah. and it just, it's amazing. We can see what's happening to the church. And so there was a, you know, a, a women's guild started. And then my wife said, I want to start a walking with purpose group. And so now there's 35 women in that. And there's a bunch of women that go to the women's guild. And we never had a youth group. It was a non-existent youth group, really. Yeah. And now all of a sudden there's a ton of kids going. And you can't tell me it's it's not because the men rose up and started leading the faith. The women were inspired. And yeah. now you have two parents that are equally yoked or, or closer to being yoked equally than they ever mm. were. And the children are inspired and they want to follow suit. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if like the women, aren't they usually kind of more vulnerable to one another naturally? You know? I think so. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think uh, there's things with women that are, yeah. that are harder. You know, I, mean, yeah. I hear a lot of women say, you know, that, and, and you hear about it in high school, like guys have to worry about physical abuse yeah. and women are more mental abuse of yeah. just yeah. the way they right. might treat each other when they're younger yeah. or say things. And so I guess in that regard, some women are okay with being vulnerable, but there's probably still some of that fear yeah. from yeah. older memories. Yeah. But I would say it's probably harder for men because men just have that sort of yeah. ingrained, you're not supposed to do that into them. Yeah. And those four different nights, there's still like vulnerability practiced in those. There's oh, like, yeah. 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 Cause I, you know, we're throwing axes, guys, after the first round or two, I'll look over and there's guys that have just kind of pulled out sitting on two bars. Yeah. A beer yeah. You can tell one guy's got a hand on the other one's yeah. shoulder. It's yeah. not common to see somebody pray over another one yeah. right in the middle of something. And yeah. Yeah. it's just, you know, we've gotten to the point where like, this is who we are and this is what we do. And, yeah. and, it's just, it's, it's life changing. Like people mm. ask me all the time, they say, you seem so comfortable in your skin. And I'm like, well, everybody knows my dirty laundry. I have nothing to hide, right? Like I don't, <laughs> I don't, there's nothing for me to either, if you don't like me because of something yeah. I, yeah. that happened in my life, then, you know, I'm human and that, that hurts. But yeah. at the same time, God's given me all these friends over here. And that's one of the biggest um, fears I think men have is what they're going to lose when they surrender yeah. to God. You know, that's what the devil starts saying. You're going to lose this. You're going to lose that. You know, you're not going to be able to be, a, to be the same guy. Yeah. So who are you going to be? Right. Right. Now I can't watch the movies I want to watch because they got stuff in them that I'm not supposed to be watching. And I can't right. listen to this music. And I identify yeah. with all those things. So who am I going to be? Yeah. And what I tell guys is I say, look, I would, I would dare to say that the person who created you knows who you're supposed to be more than anyone. And mm -hmm. once you allow him to show you that, you're going to find those things that you're so worried about losing, you don't miss, yeah. right? You don't miss. Like I lost plenty of friends because mm -hmm. I had priests around all the time. I love yeah. these priests that were pouring into me. And so I wanted to pour back into them. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's not uncommon for every week in my house to be full of two or three priests just hanging out. It's like yeah. a revolving door just coming in and yeah. they love my family and we love them and all my friends that come over there and watch ball games and just yeah. celebrate life together. And and there were a lot of guys that, you know, quit coming. And then all of a sudden I was on a messenger feed with a bunch of guys I've been friends with for years and that thing quieted. And one day I said, man, did y'all take me off of that or something? <laughs> one guy was very sheepish. He's like, oh, I, I just noticed you weren't on there one day. I didn't do it. And yeah. I, it was very hurtful, you know, yeah, and I took yeah. it to God. And he's like, look, follow him. He's going to cost you some things. Yeah. And I never said it wouldn't. 
yeah. as part of carrying your cross. And But I guarantee you, if you stick with me, you're going to have some things that are way better than what you lost. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. and the problem is men have to have to trust to believe that, right? Yeah. That's the problem is a lot of men won't come out and say it, but it's like, I just don't trust God. Like, I don't, I don't trust him with that. Yeah. And that's often the thing that God wants, right? I don't, I'll trust him with everything but my money. That's yeah. what God wants. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll trust him with everything but my musical taste or my, you know, movies or what I'm, this, whatever it is in my life. And that's often what he wants. Mm. And that's why we have that, that sort of suffering that's involved with that and that pain and that it's sort of that nudging, you know, uh, um, that suffering that, you know, is part of the Catholic life, right? That yeah. we, so many of us run from, but Christ calls us to embrace and, you know, I found uh, Hebrews chapter 12 to be one of my favorite chapters. It talks about mm-hmm. suffering specifically and and really just lets you know that if you haven't suffered, then you're not, it, it says another word, but you're not, um, it says you're not really a son of God. You're, 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 you're a bastard is what it says. What is it in the Bible? <laughs> Sorry for the French bones. The Bible says it, not me. So, but he says that and I'm like, wow, like all this time I've looked at my life as losing things and suffering and all this is punishment. Mm-hmm. But it's not because it goes on right after that to say, you know, your earthly fathers uh, disciplined you. How much more right does your your heavenly father? And then it says you're disciplined so that you may join him in his righteousness. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of put together for me like this is this is all to adjoin my suffering with Christ on the cross. And when you come to understand that as a man, like you look at these opportunities, doesn't mean suffering is any nicer or easier. It just means there's there's purpose and there's use to this now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I can I can give it to I can put it at the foot of the cross and Jesus can do some amazing things with it that I right. really could. Right. And so men start to see that. And that's where you see the joy in people, I think, where you kind of see somebody that's given their life and they've sort of figured some of this out where conversion's always a constant thing. Right. We're never there. We're always on the journey. But those people you see, they're just like, I mean, there's something different about them. Yeah. yeah. That's where all that comes from. Yeah. Has any other parishes like taken your model and used it or? Well, uh, we're just starting out with a lot of it. You know, Uh I'm a a shy guy by nature with those things. Like it's easy for me to like pick up a bottle of that Perel over there and say this, Mm -hmm. you should buy this and this is why you should have it. But going and trying to sell something of, you know, like that is hard for me. So, but recently I just came back from Indiana two days ago and, Mm -hmm. and guys have been listening to the podcast and they've heard about the narrow road and, so they brought me up there to speak to 250 guys and they have Knights of Columbus, but they don't have anything sort of like this. And so I got up there and I shared my witness and I told them about the group and they're going to start a group using the materials uh, this coming Sunday. So they just ordered all the stuff and I've sort of realized this is my lane, you know, that I, I'm not worried about going and speaking at all these big things. And I want to go places where I can go in and speak to men and help them build something that will be there long after I'm gone. Right. Whether they use my stuff or somebody else's, yeah. that's inconsequential. Right. If that's even a word, I think I said that. <laughs> but um, they, I just want to know, like if I drive back through Evansville, Indiana in five years or six years and I pull up that Pierce's bulletin, it says men's meeting Sunday at six o'clock. Yeah. And know yeah. that, man, there's still guys there doing what we started. And, right. and this, is, this is still helping their parish. Yeah. And, and I want to teach men to fish. Mm-hmm. And so from at least the little bit of fishing I've learned. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm go- I've got another invite uh, the other day from a parish out in New Mexico that actually wants me to come do a four-day parish mission to the uh-huh. whole parish and then mm-hmm. help them start a men's group. So, mm. 
Um, I just think that's where it is. I think God calls a lot of guys to be leaders and to lead stuff. Yeah. And they get to that point where they're like, they're feeling it, but they go, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm scared. Watch how, who am I to lead? All the things I heard, right? When right. I was trying to open that door. Yeah. So what I want to do differently is I want to teach those men to lead. A lot of times there's content. There's, oh, you have a men's group. Here's all my stuff. Yeah. You know, hit play for 45 minutes and you're golden, <laughs> right? Yeah. But it doesn't open up to all the other things we've talked about here. Yeah. So what yeah. I want to do is, is you get the narrow road, you do it in your parish, you get guys, you're not alone. I'm not leaving you. I'm not riding off into the sunset. You know, right. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to be available to you. And I'm going to, I'm actually putting together now in the studio at, back at home, um, training videos about things that men need to know if you're going to lead. Mm-hmm. First of all, is God calling you to lead? Mm-hmm. You know, what's your life with God like? I mean, if you have a terrible spiritual life, you probably shouldn't be leading yeah. other men. You right. know, I mean, you, you need to be able to exemplify what you're preaching and walk right. by your life. Right. And so um, you need to know that. I mean, are you a humble guy? Are you a listener? Um, are you willing to be vulnerable and share your life? Like all these things can be taught. And so it's my intention to say, you know, this is something to a pastor that's easy to put in place. You know, pastors have a million things that come across their desk. They want to start a men's group, but they also got to worry about the budget and the fund yeah, and all yeah. that stuff. So that we have an implementation guide that has six easy steps. It's like boom, 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 one page. A pastor can look at it, say, all right, that seems doable. I'll find a guy I can trust. I'll put him in touch with John, and then I'll train them. Right. to be able to do what we've been talking about here. Yeah. And then the men get the narrow road. And we have a parish discount price on it. So it's like $14 for men to get it. It's coming to their home. So there's no logistics of someone at the parish having to divvy up 40 books to people. They have them and they're doing it on their own. And they come to these meetings ready with stuff they've already done. So they're not sitting there for an hour having to watch a video to figure out what to talk about. They've been living it in their, day, their life every day. Mm-hmm. Then they have a short video from me that kind of gets them going. And then they can use that as a catalyst and let that vulnerability do the rest and the Holy Spirit take over. All right. Well, thank you, John, so much for speaking with us. It's great to hear the bigger picture of it all. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs)